You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we are grateful. We have read, this is the day that the Lord has made. And so we choose to rejoice and be glad in it. We sense that we are late in the history of the earth. And so believing it is high time, I pray that this morning you would arrest our attention, focus us on Jesus, encourage, fan the flames of our faith, be real in our midst, and dwell in our hearts. We shall not ask you to send your spirit. We shall not. For we believe that when we arrived here this morning, your spirit was here with power. And so we pray instead that we would be here, present, alert, awake, sensible, and yielded. Take our hearts and make them yours in this moment. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, please say with me, amen Amen and amen. It's fascinating that they knew the trouble was coming. They knew what type of trouble it was going to be. They knew where it was coming from. And yet, they were a thousand percent unprepared. If you were to take a look at a map of Minnesota and put your finger in what you figure to be the middle of that state, your finger would come down somewhere near the little town of Hinckley. Now in the late 1800s, Hinckley was two things. It was a railroad town and it was a, a forestry town, a logging town. The Hinckley sawmill had tens of millions of board feet of lumber prepared and ready to go. But in the late 1800s, I believe the year was 1897, it was a long, hot summer. And every inch of that lumber was bone dry, tinder dry, which is the sort of thing you hope for from lumber. But at this moment, there was a fire racing towards Hinckley. In fact, two fires. Ultimately, they came together before they reached Hinckley. Did people in Hinckley, Minnesota, not know what the phenomenon of a forest fire was? No, they understood, but they didn't understand. They knew there were fires coming, and so they took some preparations. Well, I said a moment ago, they were thousands of percent unprepared, so let's talk about the preparation. Now, I don't know if you are as unfamiliar as I was with what a hogshead is. I don't mean the head of a hog. They filled hogsheads, 10 or 12 of them with water. These are barrels, large barrels, large-ish barrels, containing about 100 gallons each. They said, they tell us there's a fire coming, and so we'll get ready and we'll fill some barrels with water, 10 or 12 of them. So they had a 1,000 or maybe 1,200 gallons of water, and they had something resembling a garden hose. I don't know what your garden hose is like. I got one. It's no match for a forest fire. 
I would like you to think with me how valuable a thousand gallons of water would be in the face of a coming forest fire. The average backyard swimming pool contains 20,000 gallons of water. This was 5% of that. This was about four water beds worth of water. About 25 bathtubs full of water. To put it another way, about three teenage showers full of water. <laughs> That's all it was. And when the fire came, obviously, their meager, tiny preparations were no match for what was a literal firestorm. You know that forest fires are so destructive, so great, so strong, they generate their own weather patterns. You will see a forest fire here, but out in advance of the forest fire, maybe even a quarter of a mile, gases will accumulate in the air, and then suddenly they will ignite, so that distant from the forest fire, the air will itself be burning. The sky will be ablaze. Strange things can happen. The wind whistles. No, it blows like a gale, like a, like a tornado almost, almost. The weather in advance or accompanying a forest fire itself is brutal. So the people understanding that now it was too late, now they couldn't run, uh, some of them hid in their basements, in their cellars. Good idea. No, no, bad idea. Because a forest fire comes through and sucks out all the available oxygen. And so people, families, families, whole families, sometimes multiple families, hiding in a cellar, hiding in a basement, all perished, died, asphyxiated. If you stumbled upon them, you would say, it looked like they were sleeping. And I would say, you understand the state of the dead. There they were asleep. And they would not wake some of them until the resurrection when Jesus comes back. What did others do? They hid in open places cover themselves with wet blankets, soaked blankets. That was not a bad idea. But it was a bad idea to do that and underestimate the fire. One little girl was under a blanket with her mother. That strong wind just blew her little teddy bear out of her hand and blew it out into the field. Her reaction, she stood up and ran towards it. The fire's reaction, almost instantly her hair and her clothing caught fire and as her mother watched, she was burned to death in full view. This was a scene that was repeated again and again and again. The people just did not know how serious the danger was. People were filling trunks with their possessions and dragging those trunks down Main Street. They perished with their possessions. They died with their trunks. Those who survived either got out of town on by rail, and that was itself a story. Many took refuge in rivers or ponds, and they were able to, but not without great difficulty, survive. Officially, 418 people died. I just said that like it was nothing. So I shall say it again out of respect for the dead. Initially, it was reported that 418 people lost their lives. It is said there is little doubt that that number was closer, closer to or exceeded 500. Among them, the man who shot, the man who shot Abraham Lincoln in 1865. It was madness, wasn't it? Four days after Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia surrendered at the village of Appomattox Courthouse. Four days after that, at the Ford Theater, the madman John Wilkes Booth assassinated President Lincoln. 
He fled to a farm hid in a tobacco barn. It was suggested he should surrender, he and his accomplice. His accomplice did, but he would not. And so a man named Thomas Corbett shot him, and he died shortly afterwards. There is no actual empirical evidence to prove that that man Corbett died in the fire in Hinckley, Minnesota, but that's because it was kind of hard to prove that stuff back then after a fire had done its job. It was absolutely devastating. There is a memorial to that great Hinckley fire there in Hinckley today. Fascinatingly, after the fire, Agriculture became a staple industry around Hinckley because now the soil was rich and productive. That's perverse, isn't it? There was a fire coming. They knew the fire was coming, but they underestimated how dangerous and how deadly it would be. My brother... My sister, my expectation is that you cannot possibly fail to see the parallel. Somebody who commanded a turn of phrase once wrote long ago that a storm is coming relentless in its fury. I wrote where somebody looking forward to the time of trouble coming said something along these lines. Ordinarily, you can anticipate how bad something is going to be, but there is no way that we can anticipate how bad will be the times that are yet before us. I say that not to intimidate, not to provoke fear, confusion, angst, anxiety, or worry. But friend of God, it is clear based on what we read in the Scripture, based on what we have been instructed to know and understand, it is imperative that we are awake and not asleep. Jesus is coming soon. That's a great day. But this side of the second coming of Jesus, there is clustered together a, a series of events that should sober us up and cause us to be wide awake and not asleep. I was flying on an airplane yesterday. And there was behind me a gentleman who was asleep. I could not see that he was asleep because he was behind me. And I am a father and not a mother. Mothers have eyes in the back of their heads. <laughs> I have heard people snore. I have taken corrective action when sleeping in the room with somebody who snores. I have never really taken corrective action on an airplane until yesterday. As the man snored, and I couldn't see him, he ended each snore with what sounded like uh, a desperate attempt for life over death. It was a choking sound. I'd never heard that before. And I looked at the gentleman sitting to my left, and he, he, he was doing this. What in the world can be happening? I furtively glanced behind me, and the woman sitting behind, beside the snoring man, clearly not connected with him in any way, had a look on her face that thought, uh, she looked like the, the wide-eyed emoji that you have on your phone. <laughs> and I thought to myself, the man is sleeping and it is not good. He needs to be awake. I reached behind myself, found his lower leg, and one, two, three, 
smacked him. There was not a single ungrateful person on the plane. You will be glad to know the snoring stopped. I texted my daughter. I said, I make no apologies. If you want to sleep, find a bedroom, not seat 11E on an airplane. There was no more snoring. It was a calamity for those of us seated near him. A calamity was averted because the slumbering man was awakened from his sleep. I wonder if God looks down from above and says to himself, somebody needs to reach back and tap those folks and wake them out of their sleep. Some of them are sleepwalking. They look like they're alive. They look like they're awake, but they're not. Others are in a deep sleep. They are comatose. And yet we read these words in the Bible. I wonder if you would turn with me in your Bible or on your device to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We will read the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 13. And now you're worried. It is not unusual for somebody to fall asleep when I preach. Not unusual. But you are concerned because you may know that there are times that you snore. And now I have given anyone sitting in front of anyone else permission. In fact, I have commissioned you to take corrective action should this happen in your presence today. Romans chapter 13. I'll start reading in verse 10 simply because verse 10 is a wonderful verse, not because I had planned to read it. The Bible says, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I want you to say amen. amen. The fulfilling of the law isn't blind obedience. It's loving obedience. The fulfilling of the law isn't knowing the right things to do and struggling to do them because you feel like you will be damned if you don't. No, it is a privilege to be a Christian when you know Jesus and you accept his love in your heart, suddenly the love of Jesus comes, uh, wells up within you and your obedience becomes a matter of love for God, not fear of the consequences. Paul wrote, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then he said in verse 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Paul wrote these words, getting on towards 2,000 years ago. Now, they were perilous times. Those were hardly the good old days. But speaking to his generation, witnessing what was taking place in the world, socially and religiously and politically, Paul was able to say, it is high time to awake out of sleep. He went on to say, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed or when we first believed. When we believed then, salvation was near, but now salvation was nearer. Did you ever play that game on the other side of the millennium or the new century, calculating how old you would be when the year 2000 came around? Yeah, you did. I was going to be like five or six years old, and I, I, I knew that, and 
calculated that. We, we would do that in school as kids, you know. Of course you did. Did you ever have those conversations where you said, no, we're not trying to set a date. We really don't know. But when do you think Jesus is really going to come back? Sure you did. I want you to go back to the day you were baptized, presuming you have been baptized. There are some here today who are pre-baptism, and that's okay. You're in the right place. But go back to the day that you were baptized, and you thought ahead, and you said, how long do we have before Jesus returns? Oh, I did that. We looked forward, and we calculated, and we weren't hasty, and, and we weren't presumptuous, but man, looking at what was going on in the world and reading what the Bible said, we figured back then, Oh, man, I don't want to sound like an unbeliever, but maybe 25 years. Well, those 25 years were, were expired several years ago. You thought that you wouldn't live to have gray hair. You thought that your children would probably not graduate from high school. You thought that surely there's not enough time to have grandchildren. And so now you're thinking, if you have grandchildren and gray hair and so forth, now you're thinking, well, were we wrong? Well, I think the right thing to say is, no, you are not wrong. It's just that now you are a whole lot more right. Jesus is coming back not just soon, but sooner. Sooner than when we first believed. He's coming back soon. We'll talk about that. No, let's talk about it now. Friend of God... God allowed COVID for myriad reasons. It was a tragedy, is a tragedy. People lost their lives, families buried loved ones. I hate to bring this up because undoubtedly there is an empty chair here today that would otherwise have been filled but not for COVID. And I'm sorry for your loss and for the pain you still experience. But even in the midst of all of that, God was endeavoring to get through to our hardened hearts. You see, in evangelistic meetings, we teach every single time about the mark of the beast. We talk about that. We talk about laws that will be passed. We talk about worship that will be enforced. We talk about an antichrist power, which even today is supremely powerful. We talk about God's people, among them, the faithful who will follow Jesus and be true, irrespective of conditions and circumstances. We speak about the seal of the living God. We talk about the mark of the beast. And any evangelist here today will tell you what I'm about to tell you. People would say to us repeatedly, oh, we see that, that's clear. And then they would say, Wes, I see you there. Wes, you'll agree with me. And then people would say, but how's that going to happen? We can't imagine that happening in this world. Laws that will be passed restricting our freedom, the entire world coalescing around a single unlikely issue. How's that going to actually play out? I want to tell you, friend of God, that in the evangelistic series that we have held since March of 2020, not one person has asked that question. Not one. There we were getting about our daily lives and people said, oh, there's a terrible virus coming and folks are going to get sick. And we were asking questions like, well, should we do the evangelistic series or not? I mean, those were the naive older days before we knew what this was really going to be like. Oh, it'll blow over. In March, they were saying, we're going to suspend the, the, the high school sports season in, in September. 
Oh, they're telling me that my daughter's not going to be able to play volleyball, a friend of mine said. I said, oh, come on, man. That's September, April, May, June, July. That's like six months away. I would have blown right through it in six months. And you probably said the same. We just didn't get it. We didn't know. But overnight, overnight, something small, and I mean so small you cannot see it with the naked eye, shut down the world. Now, what I'm about to say, not political statements, and they're not critical statements, but looking back, these are the things that we can now observe. People from A to Z, Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, were talking about one thing, and that was the coronavirus, or this one, uh, COVID-19. Governments were taking corrective action, every government. A friend of mine lived in Western Australia. Oh, he was so cocky about it. In fact, I just got a text from him an hour ago. He was, oh yeah, the rest of Australia's locked down. Them all, all them crazy people out there. But we're fine out here in Western Australia because Western Australia is about as far from anywhere as you can get. We aren't going to be, we're just fine. He's singing a different song now. Of course, Perth and the rest of Western Australia went through the, the challenges that everybody else went through. Overnight, the world was shut down. Overnight, commerce was affected. Overnight, freedoms were removed. Well, I'm going to church this week, aren't I? Nope. The church is shut. What? They wouldn't do that. But there are restaurants open and there are places of entertainment. There are casinos open, but they have mandated that we shut the churches. Well, yes, society's hierarchy of priorities was very uh, uh, explicitly arrayed before us. You mean that I cannot go to the store when I want to and buy something? That's correct. And depending on where you lived in the world, where I'm from, the authorities were telling people, don't talk to your neighbors. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Don't go outside, but maybe this far from your home. Can you imagine? It was, of course, demonstrated that those of us with any common sense knew you can't catch a virus by walking past somebody on a sidewalk. But you were on a nature trail and people were coming towards you, doing the big old trying to get around you. Like you had leprosy. Overnight, we were fearful to the extent of irrationality. Overnight, freedoms were removed. Overnight, laws were passed. And even though much of what we see over the last year or two defied rationality, the authorities have doubled down and they've said, you ain't seen nothing yet. In other words, we can make it worse for you next time. Now, friend of God, if you are not seeing a religious parallel here, if you are not seeing a correlation between what went on in society, and I'm not faulting anybody, I think well-educated people, meaning well, did pretty much their level best. That's what happened for the most part. You've got to understand about the mark of the beast. This isn't evil people trying to make other people evil, but good people trying to encourage other people to do what they think is good consequences be damned. Friend of God, COVID was a lesson. I hope you learned just how thin the ice is on which society stands today. It's thin. It has cracked. The ice flows are starting to separate soon, and very soon we are going into the cold water of confusion. 
friend of God, how will we stand in that great day? God is calling to us now. If you have been asleep in your Christian experience, what does it say right? Let me say that. Oh, it is, it is, it is what? High time to awake out of sleep. And I don't want you to be so presumptuous or arrogant as to think, yeah, that guy sitting in front of me needs to wake up. There is a parable in the Bible, the parable of 10 virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. And you're busy thinking, well, as long as I'm wise, I'm okay. Well, at your peril, what we learn from that parable is that all 10 were what? All 10 were asleep. That, ladies and gentlemen, must implicate you. It must implicate me. All 10 were asleep, and now it's high time to awake out of sleep. We cannot take a moment to be presumptuous enough to say it's the other guy's problem. When Jesus spoke to the church and he said, you think you're okay, rich and increased with goods, but you don't know that you are, tell me, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are excoriating words. Jesus doesn't dress them up. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He says to us what we don't want to hear, but thank God it's what we need to hear. He is saying it is time for the church to repent. My daughter is reading a devotional book right now called The Faith I Live By. I would like to encourage her to read another one called The Hope of Glory, but maybe she get around to that. Uh, the Faith I Live By. It is, I think, a better book. Uh, given the, the author of the book. And she sent me a little quote from that book that she thought was powerful. I would uh, endeavor to dig it up right here, but that might take me a little longer than I like because my daughter and I text with some frequency. But the essence of the quote was that if you are partly in the world and partly in the church, you will find yourself, I think, 5% in the church and 95% in the world. And ultimately, you'll be swept away. Friend of God, the God of heaven is calling to us to make a decided stand today. If you've been sleepwalking, if you've been slumbering, if you've been stumbling in your Christian experience, God brought you here today that you might hear an alarm clock and not hit the snooze button. It is high time today that we be awake, sensible, understanding that there are forces in this world greater than you, greater than me. What does the Bible tell us? We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. We are in a war here. You know, don't you, that cultural Christianity isn't Christianity. It's fakery. If you are in the church because you were born that way, I mean, thank God, you had at least a leg up. But your family tree is not going to get you into heaven. When the books of record are open and the book of life, God is not opening up your genealogy. Thank God she's related to that guy. Thank God he's the great grandson of this wonderful minister or missionary. No, no. It's not your family tree God's going to look at, but your heart, your life record, and the reality of your connection with Jesus. Friend of God, it is high time. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. What does Paul go on to say? The night is far spent. The day is at hand. He says, 
Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. There's the solution and we'll get back to it in just a moment. He says the night is far spent. I remember doing the graveyard shift at, at, a, at a gas station and other places as well. But at the gas station, I was outside as much as I was inside. And you get to about three or four o'clock in the morning and you think the night is never going to end. It is pitch black out there. You've never seen darkness like you see at that hour of the night. And then maybe depending on the time of the year at 4.45 or 5 or 5.15 or 5.30, you look up at the sky and the black is turning to blue. And you realize the night is really gone and the morning is coming on. And that's where we are now in the history of this earth. The night is behind us. The day is breaking. It might not be beams of bright sunshine yet, but that darkness in the sky is dissipating. It is disappearing before the oncoming sunlight. Jesus is coming back soon. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to talk with you about some basics. And here's what I've learned. I've learned a couple of things. I've learned that God's people are less in need of deep theology and more in need of really being certain about the basics. Nothing wrong with deep theology, but rather than stand here and discuss with you the chiastic structure of the book of Revelation, as fascinating as that might be, we need to understand some things, and uh, I'll go through them starting at A. I don't think we'll get all the way down to Z. We certainly won't get to Z, but we'll start in A. Ladies and gentlemen, we must be certain today that the Bible is the Word of God. And you say, amen, but the sands of society are shifting beneath your feet so that people are able to look at the Bible and say, amen, and then, and then speak. Is the word attack? Of course it must be. And then speak attacking the Bible in their very next breath. I want to say this to you. You don't have to like what it says. You know that for some time now, the Bible has been sort of out of step with the prevailing winds in society. You understand that. You understand that the Bible is not what you would call politically correct, but it is correct. Today, you will hear all of the time about spe people speaking their truth. With respect, I don't care about your truth. I simply care about the truth, and the Bible is the truth. We are to hang on to it and never let it go. That doesn't mean we should be belligerent. We aren't spoiling for a fight. We are to be meek, meek, but faithful, meek, but firm, meek, but strengthened by the Spirit of Almighty God. The Bible is the Word of God. We are not going to sell it. We're not going to barter it. We are not going to trade it. We are not going to let it go. It is God's Word. Listen, friend, we must never let go of the Word of God not a verse, not even the verses that you don't like, especially the verses that you don't like. The Bible is a revelation of a will of a loving God, a God who set up earth, but set up heaven even before he set up earth. Heaven was our original home, and God said, I will create a planet, and I will put there Adam and Eve, and their, 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 their progeny will, will grow there in preparation for heaven. Sin interrupted the process. God did not abandon us even then. Heaven awaits. God says the way to heaven is found in this book. It is a revelation of the love of God and the great sacrifice Jesus made when he died out there on an old rugged cross. Friend of God, I want to take this a step further. Somebody once described something which was a lesser light pointing to the greater light. 
The Bible, of course, is the lesser light. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 says, The devil was wroth with the woman. The woman is the who? Devil was angry with the church and went to make what? With the remnant of her seed. Those who do two things. One, they keep the commandments of God and the devil hates that. The mark of the beast is an all-out assault on the commandments of God. Our safety is found in fidelity to Jesus, our connection to Jesus, our yielding to Jesus so that the will of God is done in our life as the Spirit fills us and Jesus lives His life in us. And so the devil despises the Ten Commandments and will do anything he can do to loosen or weaken your faith in them as a transcript of the character of the Almighty. There's something else he hates. The devil was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do two things. They keep the commandments of God. And they have the, tell me, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't intend to spend all day defining what the testimony of Jesus Christ is because the Bible has done that. Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or the gift of prophecy. And Elijah had the gift of prophecy. And Nathan had the gift of prophecy. And Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and Paul and John had the gift of prophecy. And in earth's last days, God has given the remnant the gift of prophecy. And we are told in Revelation chapter 12 that as part of the culmination of that great war taking place down here in earth's last days, the devil goes to war against those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. I want to encourage you today, Christian friend, now is not the time to let the spirit of prophecy go. Not now, not ever. If it wasn't good for us, God wouldn't have given it to us. If it wasn't necessary, God would not have inspired a young woman to write what she wrote. If it wasn't needful, God would have known that. I read just a few days ago, somebody's diatribe against Ellen White and the gift of prophecy. What was fascinating about it, it was just the same old, tired, meaningless arguments rehashed from years, decades ago. Same old stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to encourage you to pick up a book like The Great Controversy and read it. But I read it once, John. Yeah, when? Well, 20 years ago. Read it again. Read Christ's object lessons. Read education. If you haven't read through the testimonies, the nine volumes, read them. You'll see on the front cover it says, Testimonies for the Church. And if you consider that you are part of the church, pick them up and read them. You were going to say to me, I got into volume one and it was talking about the, the, the dress reform. I have mercy. All right, just read it quickly. I got into volume four or something. All it was about was the publishing work, the publishing work, the publishing work. Well, a literature evangelist is going to tell you to read that slowly. But read it quickly. But read it. You will find in the testimonies your case again and again and again and again. I'm reading through the testimonies right now. I've been tempted to put it down. Lord, you're speaking a little straight to me here. I know you're speaking to me here. But if I need it, I want it. Even if I don't want it, I want it. 
You want to read a book like Education and the Desire of Ages and Prophets and Kings and Patriarchs and Prophets. Why? Because they were given specifically to God's people living down here in earth's last days. We cannot afford to relinquish those books. We cannot afford to ignore those writings. And I say that knowing full well that there are loud voices, even in prominent places, who would not say amen to what I said. And if you are one of them, thank God you are here because it's evidence to me that the Spirit of God is trying to get through to your heart even again. Ladies and gentlemen, God has given us the Word of God. He blessed us with the Spirit of prophecy, and we do not want to let it go. We are in a battle down here in earth's last days, and we need all the help that God has designed that we should have. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. Ladies and gentlemen, it is high time. It is high time that we committed ourselves again to the Bible and to the spirit of prophecy. It is high time that we committed ourselves to holy living. Now I'm going to run the risk of sounding old-fashioned, but I'm in pretty good company. I know God, and God is kind of old-fashioned himself. He's certainly old, and he's old-fashioned. Friend of God, even though society changes, the Bible doesn't change. And if you need to think again about what's taking place in your life, if this is the day that God is calling you to repent of something, then repent. If you can close your eyes or not and think for a moment about something needling you, something that shouldn't be in your life, it's time to let it go. It's vital to let it go. The Bible goes on to say, or it said a moment ago, that we need to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 14 says, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm reading from verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You heard those words. Good people don't go to heaven. Holy people do. And God is calling us to live lives that don't mirror your unsaved neighbor, but reflect Jesus' character in your own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he, she is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible tells us it is high time. It is too late in the history of this earth to be a lukewarm Christian. It is too late in the history of this earth to be anything other than surrendered to Jesus. Let's talk about that for a moment. Because the fear is when somebody says what I have just said, that you might feel like, great, I will leave the auditorium today, committed in my heart to living like I've never lived before. You'll make it about five steps and fall flat on your face. The Bible says that the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when we read Paul saying, it is high time for this and it is high time for that, the fact of the matter is, it is high time to yield to Jesus 
and allow him to take possession of our hearts. That's it. When temptation comes against you, you yield. When sin comes knocking at your door, you yield. When you come to a crossroad in life and one signpost points to sin and the other points to righteousness and your weakened flesh doesn't have the ability to go in the direction of Jesus, that's when you yield and you pray and say, Jesus, thy will be done. He never fails to answer that prayer. And if you have not been living by faith, if you've not been living by every word that proceeds from out of the mouth of God, if you've never experienced Jesus living his life in you, then you are going to see God working miracles in your life. Friend of God, our churches are populated by too many cranky people, too many irascible people, too many unsaved people, too many fanatical people following their own desires, certainly not following the leading of the Spirit of Almighty God. It is now that we yield and we pray the prayer that Jesus prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You find it impossible to stay away from those web pages. It is now God's great joy to demonstrate what He can do when you cannot. You find it impossible to speak kind words to that person who rubs your fur the wrong way. God is ready to make a new person out of you. You find it impossible to write a tithe check, not only because you're too selfish, but you are, but because you fear life without that amount of money. Write that check, put it in the envelope, place it in the offering plate, go online and make the donation and then say, Lord, you do in my life what I cannot do. I give you permission and you watch it. He will. When we have churches filled with people who are leaning on Jesus, appealing to him that his will is done, praying the prayer that says, Almighty God, I cannot, then you are going to see that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Those verses in the Bible are not merely good suggestions. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What does that mean, Elder, if it doesn't mean they keep the commandments of God? Can you tell me? This is not saying, here are they who have agreed that these are 10 pretty good principles and that it would be a pretty good idea if on some occasion at least they could lean in that direction. Now you're thinking about your own life right now. You say, well, I'm breaking this one and this one and this one and this one. And you're saying that for two reasons. One, because you are, and two, because you're honest. But it doesn't change what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Blessed are they that do His commandments. Revelation 12, verse 17. We read it a moment ago. The devil is making war against those who keep the commandments. So go ahead and look at your weakness. That's okay. You are weak, but you have Jesus. You are weak, but you are growing. You are weak, but you are a creature of faith. And now expect that Jesus will give you victory where you were once experiencing failure. Those verses are not in the Bible to discourage you or merely to encourage you. They are there as guiding lights, as promises to you about what God will do in your experience if you let him, if you want him to. Those verses, all things are passed away. All things are become new. That's an imperative. That's not, some, that's, not, that's not a wish. 
It's not a fervent hope. It's not a dream. It's not a, oh, I don't really mean that, but I'm just painting it in rosy terms. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity, there is one word that follows captivity in that verse. Tell me what it is. And bringing into captivity every thought to the what? Obedience of Christ. First time I read that verse, I was deflated. I thought that had never happened in my life. And then I thought, well, Lord, let's give this a try. Let's yield and let your will be done. I certainly would not want to lie to you and tell you that I'm the finished product. But I would definitely want to tell you the truth. God is able to keep his promises. All his biddings are enablings. And he can do in your life just what he says he can do. Friend of God, we're either getting ready for heaven or we're not. And if we're not, when the forest fire comes, it's going to sweep us away. It's coming, and it's worse than you can think. Again, I don't say that. This is not a horror show, but this is the Word of God. Soon, a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. That's soon. But thank God, soon, the latter rain, when the Spirit of God is poured out with such power that those looking on are going to see what's taking place and call it fanaticism. That means that God is going to do in you, through you, in your midst, the sorts of things that you might not have even thought possible. It's springtime. We are busy raising beans and tomatoes when we ought to be raising Lazarus. This is what God wants to do in the church, to make the church exhibit A. We had a responsive reading earlier. It spoke about the 144,000. Are we planning to be in that group or are we not? Is there power in the Word of God or is it impotent? Does God keep His promises or is He a liar? I say He keeps His promises. Ladies and gentlemen, it is high time for the church to be what God has called it to be. In the book Song of Solomon, you don't read that very often, but the book says, the Bible says, Who is this that looketh forth as the morning? Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Who is that? That, my friend, is the church under the aegis of the Spirit of Almighty God, filled with the presence of Jesus, clothed in His righteousness. That's the church going forward, conquering and to conquer. He's coming back soon. Everything in society tells us he is coming back soon. We must be filled with his fullness. Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1 pictures God's people so filled with Jesus that the earth witnesses a manifestation of the character of God in the people of the church. Powerful. The earth lightened with his glory. That's God at work in you. The question isn't can you? The answer is no. The question is can he? The question is will you? And not so much will you do it, but will you let Jesus do it in your life? It's high time, friend. 
It's, high, it's time for the Lord to return. It's time for us to be about our Father's business. We'll talk about that later. But it is time now to allow Jesus to fill us with His presence and make us what we can be. When you lie, your conscience will speak to you. God will say you didn't need to do that. You'll agree. And your prayer is, Lord, don't let it happen again. When you take that sideways look, that furtive glance that you should not have, Spirit of God will speak to you and say that wasn't necessary. You will agree. And now your prayer is, Lord, with your help, I don't need to go there. I need Jesus living His life in me. Issues of integrity. You've been blurring the lines. Not now. Not now. God is looking for someone who will say, this is what Christianity looks like. This is what Seventh-day Adventism is. This is the power of God at work in the life of a sinner. Someone's going to raise their hand and say, Lord, send me. Lord, work in me. Lord, do your work in my life. Surprise me at how powerful you are. He'll do it for you. Listen, friend, it's time. Time to be Christians. Time to experience the power of the gospel. Time to get ready. Time to get ready. Time for the world to look on and say, there's something different about that man, that woman, that family, that congregation, that church. I wonder if we were living the lives that Jesus would have us live. If we might see more of a reaction in society to the power of the gospel. So, friend, how are we to get from here to there? It's one thing to talk about it, but someone's saying, John, I'll go if you tell me how. It's really simple. I'll tell you a story I've probably told you before. It was nighttime, darkness. Nicodemus did not want to be seen talking to the rabbi, so he came to him under the cloak of darkness. And he said to him, Master, we know you're a teacher sent from God because, wow, you do this amazing stuff. And Jesus, knowing what Nicodemus needed to hear, dispensed with all of that, and he said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus feigned ignorance. How can a man be born when he is old? Do I have to go back inside my mother's womb and be born again? This was absurd, of course. Jesus said this. That which is born of water, uh, you've got to be born of water and you've got to be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus, while he was scratching his head, was trying to figure out how that experience could be his, heard Jesus say this. Jesus said, they were out in the wilderness and Moses lifted up a serpent. And those who looked at the serpent, and Nicodemus said, you thought, he said, he thought, you don't need to say anymore. I'm familiar with the story. You know the story. They, they were in the wilderness. They were bellyaching. They were complaining. They were traveling from one side of the wilderness. Well, they were going around and around the wilderness, I suppose. And here they were upset. Here they were distressed. Here they were discouraged. And God, in order to get their attention, sent serpents in among them. Some were bitten. And some began to die. And they alerted Moses, and Moses alerted God, and God said, yes, I know what to do. Put a bronze serpent on a pole. Yes, that represented Jesus. Jesus, the sin bearer, identifying with sin, taking on him the sins of the world. Put that serpent on a pole so that when anybody looks at him, they will do what? So there they were writhing in agony on the ground, and somebody reached into his pocket and pulled out his wallet, bulging, full of, shekels. Moses, take my offering. Maybe this will help me to get well. Died. Somebody else said, I'll pray a whole lot of prayers. Maybe that'll help me to get well. Died. Somebody else said, I've got some scores to settle. 
and in his dying breaths went to this person and apologized and that person and clarified some confusion and that person and this person and died. But there was somebody else, a woman of faith. As she lay in agony, she looked over in the direction of the serpent on the pole. She looked, she gazed upon it. She continued to look and she felt herself becoming well and she was made whole. Friend of God, I see you in the 144,000 not because you're any better than anybody else, but because you took the time to look at Jesus and live. Aren't we told that by beholding we become changed? And so here's my question. At what are you looking? We spend our lives looking at these devices right here. I was uh, speaking yesterday with a gentleman who's going to be a camp meeting speaker later this week, Dr. Nedley. The research demonstrates that devices are making morons out of us. We're gazing at all the wrong stuff. And it's not just that we're looking at that which is sinful. You can look at that which is useful, but if you gaze at it too long, you become useless. Where are you focusing? You know, there was a general conference session this week, and there will be those undoubtedly who spent their entire time gazing at whatever they perceived were the problems complaining about this, belly aching about that, wanting change here, dissatisfied there. I'm promising you something. If you spend your time beholding the problems in the church, by beholding you become changed, you will become a problem in the church. That's not to say we can't have discussions. That's not to say we cannot be concerned. I'm talking about a fixation here. The people who stared at the serpent were fixated upon it. They gazed upon it. They stared at it, and they were changed. What are you staring at? Where's your money going? Where's your time going? My question for you is, where is your focus? Is it on this? Are you reading the Word of God? Are your knees and the carpet on your bedroom floor acquainted with each other? Or are they perfect strangers? Are you taking time to pray, to wrestle with God, to intercede for others? Are you focusing on your local church? I'll be there. I will help. Count me in. Do you hear about the evangelism offering at camp meeting and your heart races? Oh, this is the good stuff. Does something say I want to give? Listen, friend, this is our time right now. It's our time to be ready. It is high time. And what you focus on is what you become. Who you focus on is who you become like. My daughter goes off to college. Thank God it's only seven minutes from where we live. She comes back and she's using phrases and even inflections in her voice. I never heard them before. And then her friends come over and it all makes sense. I'm not talking about bad stuff. I'm simply saying that when she began to run with a new crowd, it affected even how she spoke and acted. What crowd are you running with? Are you running with the prayer meeting crowd? Don't lie. If you took this many people and scattered them through all of every church in Michigan, it would double the prayer meeting attendance. Are you running with the Sabbath school crowd? Are you running with the Jesus crowd? Are you running with the Bible crowd? 
Are you running with the spirit of prophecy crowd? That great gift given to the church to strengthen us and enlighten us in preparation for the return of Jesus. Friend of God, where is your focus today? Upon who are you looking? Jesus is coming back soon. And I don't mean to raise the bar so high that today you're going to go away disappointed. Well, I could never be like that. Firstly, I want you to know you could never be like that. But secondly, you've got to know Jesus can do in you what you cannot do yourself. He is able. He will work in you. He who has called you will will perform that work in you in preparation for the return of, of himself. Jesus will do what you cannot. Now the question is, A, do you believe that? And B, do you want that? A, do you want it? Do you believe it? B, do you want it? Of course we believe it. We know Jesus is coming back soon. But you're that person who hadn't been in church in years and somebody dragged you along to camp meeting this weekend. You came grudgingly. Or maybe you came and said, it'd be nice to see all friends. And you didn't know that God was going to say to you today, Jesus wants to work in your life in preparation for his return. Friend, will you let him? How can it happen? It all depends on where your focus is. 2007, the Chicago Marathon. It's one of the world's premier marathons. Oh, it's not London and it's not New York, but it's a big deal. It's not Boston, but it's a big deal. Strangest thing happened. A Romanian woman, Adriana Pertia, running her very first marathon, found herself way out in front. It was a hot day. Many of the favorites wilted. And somehow the Romanian athlete found herself in position to win. In fact, with a quarter of a mile left to go, there was no way she could possibly lose. Just no way. Well, you know she lost. I wouldn't be telling you the story if she won. How do you lose when you're so far in front? If you watch the video, and you can, you will notice that Ms. Pertia is running with a very large smile on her face. Not surprising, she's about to win the Chicago Marathon in what was her very first marathon. The crowd is cheering. You understand what happens. People line the roads close to the finish line. They clap and they cheer. They urge them on. Ms. Pertia saw all of that. And with a quarter of a mile left, her focus was not on the finish line. And she didn't think to look behind her. She started high-fiving people in the crowd as she ran by. If you're winning a race, save the high-fives for the other side of the finish line. And there's an ominous shot. Now it's head-on. She's running towards the camera and rounding the bend into the final straight, comes a woman whose name is Adere Bahane. Now you know that with an African name, this woman's a marathon runner. If I'm not mistaken, she had won the Chicago Marathon before. She was a great athlete, but she was miles behind. All the Romanian needed to do was focus on the finish and run for her life. There was no way she could have lost, but instead she was enjoying the The the, the happy moment, glad-handing, high-fiving, thank you so much, smiling and waving. Ms. Bohani pulled out to the far side of the road. She didn't want her footsteps to be heard by Ms. Pertia, and she turned on the afterburners. It's a shocking thing when the Romanian woman turns to her right and realizes she has passed with about 10 yards of the race left to run, maybe slightly more. 
the Ethiopian won by three seconds. And after running for two hours and 33 minutes, three seconds is not a long way. The Romanian athlete did not win the race for one reason. She lost her focus. That's it. She lost her focus. If she looked over her shoulder and seen the runner running and looked towards the finish line and put her head down and her tail up and ran like she was running to win, she would today be a marathon champion. She didn't win that day. She never won a marathon. Never. She could have. She should have. But she didn't because of a lack of focus. What are you focusing on? That's my question for you. Where's your focus today? Now let's flip it just quickly. We don't have much time. Where is God's focus? God's focus is on this world. And fascinatingly enough, God's focus is on you, not as a collective, but as an individual. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's what God wants for you. You are the whosoever. You. That person who was dragged, kicking and screaming, he can't meet him today. No, that's you. God's focus is on you. The struggling saint who wonders if God can possibly forgive her after all she's done. God's focus is on you. If you would just focus now, something powerful happens. You've seen those little experiments where somebody takes a magnifying glass, harnesses the sun rays, and focuses them on a single place. That sun suddenly becomes so much hotter, that heat so much more burning and intense. If you focus now, the warmth of the Son of God will burn in your heart. God will do a work in you that you would not otherwise be able to believe. Friend, it's high time. If we don't commit ourselves to Jesus today, then when? Is there a better day? If we don't accept Jesus and His promise of grace and mercy now, when? When? I wish you would think about that just for a moment and understand that God is speaking to your heart. I know there's someone sitting here today saying, Pastor, it's okay. The Lord and me were on good terms. Thank God for you. But that's not 100%. And I just wonder if we can go from this place today at 98 or 99 or 100, every individual having said, Jesus, save me. Jesus, live your life in me. Christianity, the Bible, the Word of God, prayer, but it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Jesus living His life in you and doing the work that you yourself could never do. Do something for me, please. Would you stand? Everybody stand. You're, you're waiting to stretch your legs. Some are waiting to step out. Stretch your legs. I have some friends who are going to sing, and as they sing, I think you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to appeal to you, and God is going to speak to your heart. Because there's somebody here today who's lost their focus. Some man, some woman, it might be a couple, it might be a young person, you've lost your focus. And I'm going to invite you to join me down here in the front that we can pray a prayer of recommitment. Listen, before they begin to sing, I'm not speaking to everyone. Anyone could say, yeah, I kind of lost my focus. I don't mean that. I mean that person who knows that it's time to return to Jesus. You've never been baptized and you want to be. You've been baptized and you wandered away. Or there is something fundamentally missing in your Christian experience. And you are saying to Jesus, I need you to bring that into my heart. Scott and Marion are going to sing. I'll be praying. 
And as the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, remember, Jesus paid it all, and He's calling to you to come home to Him right now. Would you come? the hook but if you can honestly say in your heart it's all good then do stay and pray there are some here today who need to make a decision for Jesus it might be a first time decision you might look at your life and say there is so much missing I'm so broken it might be just one issue that, that that's between you and God and nobody else we don't have to know but today God is speaking to your heart the Jesus who died for you is calling you to his arms he wants to take His nail-pierced hand and hold yours and, and, and guide you from here all the way to the sea of glass. And if God is speaking to you today, it's high time, friend, high time. If not now, then when? As Jesus speaks and calls to you, I'm inviting you. The Spirit of God is inviting you to come. As Scott and Marion sing, don't wait. Please, would you bring your heart to Jesus right now? Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spots And melt the heart of stone Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe After crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. If you see your pastor come forward, I don't want you to be alarmed. But I'm hoping somebody's pastor will come forward because pastors, we need somebody here to meet with those who've come forward. We're soon going to need to get you out of the aisle and up front, so could you just come forward a little bit? I know there are more people here. I'm not asking for everybody to come forward because not everybody needs to. But there are more who need to come forward. I won't bite not twice. Come, 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 come. Thanks. Just so you can come out of the aisle because there's someone who not be able to make it here. Listen, friend, this is camp meeting time. And you know what we didn't come here for? We didn't come here just for the sake of it. We came here to meet with Jesus. Pastors, if there are some here, please come down front. Circulate here. There are some people who are going to want you to pray with them. There are some who have burdens they want to discuss. Others, maybe not they're just here they're happy they'll go and that's okay so find a pastor if you would you'll like you'll identify them easy they look like pastors 
But we're going to wait a moment longer, friends. Scott and Marion aren't done. It's a beautiful song. I could listen to them and sing it all day. But some of us aren't done. There's time for you. I, I don't typically point, but I'm pointing right now. And I hope you think I'm pointing at you. There's time for you. We'll wait. I don't know where the stairs are, but I reckon you can find them pretty quick. If you need to join us, there's something powerful that happens when you say, I know I need Jesus. And then you act on that. You won't ever be the same again. You can't be. It's time. I'm not asking you to go through the motions. I'm asking you to make a decision in preparation for the return of Jesus. Ask yourself this. Are you ready to meet Jesus if He were to come right now? And if your answer was, if your answer started with, um, then you need to come forward. If you're fine, you're fine. God bless you. Scott and Marion will continue to sing and Jesus will continue to speak to your heart. This is camp meeting. We have come here to be revived. We have come here to be converted or reconverted. Let Jesus do that work in you now. God bless you as you come. Thank you, Scott and Mary, for singing. God knows that I'm, I'm happy to say, can you sing more? I'm not going to. There's one more verse. And if God is speaking to your heart, if this is a decision for Jesus, a decision for salvation, you might be that weakened sinner who is honest enough to say, God, I haven't been focusing on you. And if I don't focus soon, I'm going to be swept away. There's a storm coming. We're not strong enough. But He is. Jesus is and he wants to be strong in you you've sinned there is grace for that faith in God is like a GPS have you ever followed a GPS and, and, and you took the wrong turn and the GPS says turn left in 50 feet get back to the main route turn left recon you know, right we follow Jesus we get off course and Jesus doesn't say too bad for you he says, just turn back now. It's okay. We'll get you back on track. We'll get you on the main route. Is that you today? Have you taken a wrong turn? You need to turn back to Jesus. Is that you today? Would you let Jesus do that work in your life? He's coming back soon. Your family wants you to be saved. There's somebody here today, kind of half pie connected with the church. Family, spouse is so faithful. You show up just out of duty because you love your spouse. You love your spouse. That's one thing. We want you to love Jesus. 
Or would you be in eternity with that spouse of yours forever? Don't wait. You can come. No one's going to question you. There's so many of us up here now. You're not alone. Is God calling you? It's got to be new, friend. It's got to be new. You got to go to lunch today and sit there with your friends and eat your special K loaf and say to yourself, God has given me a new heart. By His grace, my focus is on Him. Eternity is mine. Can you say that? Eternity is yours. Imagine the two of us locking eyes now and then seeing each other again at the end of the millennium, except one of us is on the inside of the New Jerusalem and one of us is on the outside of the New Jerusalem. Today you settle, you say, I'm going to have Jesus guide me into the New Jerusalem. I'm going to have Jesus guide me to the second coming. I'm going to have Jesus strengthen me with His own person, His own self, His own grace. That's what grace is. It's God's power at work in your life. Would you experience it? Will you accept it? One more verse, Scott and Marion. Thank you, friend. If God is calling you, please respond to Jesus today and go from here in faith in Jesus, confident that when Jesus comes back, He's coming back for you. Jesus, it's high time. We acknowledge, we admit we're weak, we're broken, we're sinful, we are far from perfect. Except that today we have reached out to take hold of the hand of our Savior Jesus. And now we have every right to trust in His goodness, every right to claim His perfection. And so we do. We look at what the Bible says, casting off the works of darkness and clothing ourselves with the light. How many times have we read words like that only to get off our knees and walk into a swamp of hypocrisy? Lord, we read those words again. We're getting off our knees again and we are asking you keep us and grow us. Give us patience, patience with ourselves. We are patient at home with our little squash plants that are growing. Give us grace, Lord, not to be permissive, but to be patient as we experience the growth that comes from being connected with Jesus.
We're going to trust in you at every step. Now surrounding me are people who have come forward to renew their focus, to make a commitment or renew their commitment to Jesus and to accept again your commitment to us. We accept that. There was Jesus on a cross with his arms outstretched, affixed to that wood with spikes of iron, committed to us. There was the God of heaven who farewelled his only son. He said, you go boy, because I'm committed to them. We are committed together. There were those who sacrificed and gave and built churches and financed evangelistic series. And we showed up. You were committed. And we're accepting your commitment to us today. As we go, we promise you nothing. We don't promise you our goodness. We don't promise you our obedience. We don't promise you our ability. We don't promise you. Instead, we believe your promises to us. Lo, I am with you always. We believe it. My grace is sufficient for thee. We believe it. My God shall supply all your need. We believe it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We believe it. Behold, I come quickly. We believe it and we celebrate it. We thank you for it. We love you for it. Somewhere here, there's a weak saint. Lord, strengthen her. There's a struggling young man. Strengthen him. There is a family that needs to be glued back together by your grace. Do the gluing, Lord. Strengthen them. And bless us that as we circulate around the grounds of this hallowed place, we will breathe in the atmosphere of your grace. Trust in you. Look heavenwards. Give us focus today. Lord, it's high time. We thank you. We accept you. We love you. We praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Please say with me, amen and amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.